0: moment, I will ask you to look at Mark 1, 9 through 15 with me, which is found on page 994 of the Bibles provided to you. Have you ever had to rely on someone who has the right skills but lacks the character and personal qualities necessary to get the job done? If you've lived long enough, you've had to rely on someone with specialized skills that you don't have to solve a problem you couldn't solve on your own. Think of auto mechanics, plumbers, accountants, electricians. Most people who have uh, worked any length of time in such positions do have high ethical standards, thankfully, and we have certifications and licenses. But because they're selling you services based on specialized knowledge that you lack, they may be in a position to take advantage of you, true? There are probably many stories among us gathered here of times when we were taken advantage of by people who were highly skilled but of low character. We could probably have a contest out there in the narthex after the worship service to see who has the craziest story. Sometimes people you rely on enrich themselves working to your harm rather than to your betterment. I have a friend who's now a retired orthopedic surgeon and he once confided in me that he left a large orthopedic practice in this area and opened his own independent clinic because other doctors at the large practice were too quick to perform expensive surgeries on their patients such as spinal surgery rather than recommend lower cost alternative treatments like physical therapy and he believed his peers were being unethical. My friend was professionally trained to recognize the ethical problem based on his specialized medical training. But sadly, the patients being victimized at the clinic where he worked were being taken advantage of. The more we need to rely on others to accomplish what we cannot on our own, the more important are not only their skills, but also their character, who they are when no one's looking over their shoulder. Do they actually care about the well-being of the people they serve or are they just in it for their own benefit? The inner qualities of a person, his or her trustworthiness and earnestness become increasingly important job qualifications as a person takes on greater and greater responsibility. Think of those whose work has life or death implications made all the more poignant Sadly, this past week, think of people in law enforcement, emergency medicine, or military leadership, for example. We need to be able to trust the person who's in the role, not just what the person can do, not just what the person has done, or we put ourselves and others at great risk. Consider, if we should require qualifications of high character for doctors and court justices who can help us only in this life, how much more must we be sure we can rely on such qualifications for the one Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ? Today's short passage tells us very much about the person of Jesus Christ, his qualifications of character and heart long before he went to the cross, as he prepares for and then begins his earthly ministry. The more we need to rely on someone, the more important that person's character is. And this can be no more true than with respect to Jesus, the one we rely on to save us from the guilt of sin and the power of temptation. Please follow along silently as I read Mark 1, 9 through 15, using the English Standard, English Standard Version found on page 944 of the Bibles in a seat near you. Hear now the word of God. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, would you use your word and your spirit to teach us to think your thoughts after you, to know more nearly your heart as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name with thanks. Amen. As a helpful way of understanding And teaching about God the Son, theologians often speak about two aspects of Jesus Christ. They refer frequently to the person and work of Christ. Now, let's take a moment to think about this distinction. What do we mean by the work of Christ? The work of Christ is everything he did to accomplish salvation for all who trust in him, especially his death and resurrection. And his, uh, these acts are the centerpiece of the New Testament's gospel message or good announcement, good news, because these works of Christ are absolutely necessary to put those who sin in a right standing with a holy God. Jesus offered himself as a substitute sacrifice to pay the penalty sin- sinners deserve for their sin, for their rebellion against God, their animosity toward God. And then God raised him, from the dead to confirm that the sacrifice was fully acceptable to him and that Jesus is indeed God's promised Messiah. So that's the work of Christ and the work of Christ continues to this day. It's not done. It's presently his ministry of intercessory prayer when we pray in Jesus' name. He is praying on our behalf also together with the Holy Spirit. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. The work of Christ will be completed on that day when he returns from heaven and he will raise all people from the dead, bringing into submission and judgment all his enemies and ushering those who belong to him into a new heaven and a new earth to dwell together with him forever. We must believe, friends, in the work of Christ, especially the death of and resurrection of Christ in order to be saved from God's judgment, as the Bible makes clear in many places, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 15, and many other places. But from time to time, I wonder if some of us who claim faith in Christ believe in the historical facts of his death and resurrection, but we don't really think about trusting Jesus as a person. I fear that some who claim Christian faith seemed to take a transactional view of the Lord Jesus, thinking only about what he has done for them on the cross without cherishing and trusting him. Whatever Christ does is directly a function of who he is. His work of dying for sinners and rising from death for sinners could not have brought the forgiveness of our sins, if not for who Jesus was and is. Someone who is both fully God and fully man. A person who is sinless, yet sympathetic. Someone to whom sinners can go for relief from their guilt and for the power to obey. Jesus does not call us to trust only in what he has done in his work, but in him as a person For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those who sin need a person who is qualified to save them from sin's guilt and power. The qualifications for saving sinners rely not just on what the Savior does, but also on who the Savior is. Ultimately, our eternal destiny, friends, depends on a person, not merely on what that person does, important as that is. Here in Mark 1, 9 through 15, we learn especially about the person of Jesus Christ, his qualifications for ministry as God's appointed Savior in a formative and revealing period during which he prepares for and begins to carry out his earthly ministry. Jesus' baptism by John and his temptation in the desert reveal who Jesus is as a person. We see here especially who he is as a man. Yes, as a man who is fully God. But a man with flesh, a man with natural desire for food and drink with a mind and a soul. In learning about his character and affections as a man, God's word here draws us to trust in him even before we read of his redeeming work of death and resurrection. We see in this passage that Jesus proved himself fully qualified to be the savior of sinners, not only in his work, What Jesus does, but also in his person, who Jesus is in all of his characteristics. Let's now examine three reasons from Mark 1 9 through 15 why we can trust that Jesus is fully qualified to save those who sin, which includes me and everyone listening. The first observation here because Jesus identified with sinners, we can rely on him to save sinners. Because Jesus identified with sinners, we can rely on him to save sinners. Our passage immediately reveals Jesus' willingness to meet sinners where they are. We see in verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Jesus, the sinless man from heaven, voluntarily subjected himself to a public cleansing process Ritual by a sinful man, namely John the Baptist. Why would he do this? The parallel account in Matthew 3, 13 through 15 gives us a little more detail. Just listen as I read it. You don't have to turn there. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Matthew makes clear that Jesus went to John specifically for the purpose of being baptized by him. And John himself, knowing that Jesus was the sinless son of God, whose sandals John said he was not worthy to stoop down and untie, sensed the irony and wondered aloud why Jesus would do this. Shouldn't it be the other way around? He basically reasoned. John's baptism was a washing ritual that God established to ready the people of God to receive their Messiah. As we know from verses two through four of Mark chapter one, John was sent to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus by preparing hearts to receive him, calling all Jews to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. This water baptism symbolized the washing away of sin and guilt and the readiness of the one being baptized to turn from sin toward God and to receive God's forgiveness in the Messiah to come. So why would Jesus seek this baptism? We know also from John 1:29 that not long after John baptized Jesus. John said about him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In a very real sense, Jesus did come to John with sin. Specifically, he came identifying with our sin, which he would take upon himself at the cross in order to take it away from our own guilty record. Jesus seeks out a baptism offered to sinners in order to identify with sinners in their need, to show his compassion for them and his solidarity with them, with us, though he himself was the spotless Lamb of God. Reading further in Mark 1, in verses 12 and 13, we see Jesus identifying again with God's sin-stained people I'll read them again. Verse 12, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Immediately after Jesus was baptized, God himself, God the Holy Spirit, drove Jesus out into the wilderness, where Jesus stayed for forty days, There is a significance to the number of days God kept Jesus there. I don't think it's just a coincidental figure. I believe we're to understand from Jesus 40 days in the wilderness, a correspondence to the 40 years of Israel's wilderness wandering. And you may remember that God made his people wander in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt because they did not believe God's word about the good land he had promised to give them. So although God had provided for them the food, clothing, and shelter they needed, he forced the generation of the Israelites who sinned to live in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation died. And we see in this passage that Jesus showed solidarity with God's weak and sinful people, not only in his own time by undergoing the baptism of John, but also with God's people of old with the Israelite nation by spending 40 days wandering in the wilderness at God's command. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus continued to identify with those who knew their sin and their need for forgiveness. As we know from later in Mark's gospel, Christ was accused and mocked by the religious leaders of his time for associating with, even sharing meals with, those considered to be notorious sinners of that day, such as tax collectors and prostitutes. Christ did this because he came from heaven on a mission to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus was this kind of person, someone who was qualified to save sinners because he did not shy away from those who sin, but instead identified with them to the uttermost. Undergoing John's ritual cleansing and ultimately personally bearing the penalty for their sins in his body on the cross, yet without ever committing sin himself. Maybe you've been blessed with a relative, mentor, or loyal friend who seemed to have his or her own life in order, but who observed your life at those times when you did not. But rather than look at you self-righteously and smugly standing aloof while you make your own mistakes. This friend was the kind who would bail you out of jail at his own expense. She would endanger her reputation by standing up for you against malicious gossips. This person would dirty his clean clothes and risk injury to rescue you from a hole you fell into, a hole you dug yourself, whether figuratively or literally. He or she being strong would stand alongside you in your weakness and need. Well, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Jesus is like that greatest friend you ever had, except even greater. He's a friend who laid down his life for you, even while you were his enemy. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Christian, Do you need a Savior who identifies with those who sin? Of course you do. I do. And not only because of your past sins before conversion or sins from a time when we were less mature in our faith, you and I still fall short of the glory of God on an hourly basis. Even now, can you, can I say, I love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or I love my neighbor as myself. No. In this life, we never outgrow our need for a Savior who is willing to associate with us, to rescue us from our sin. When we forget the kind of Savior that God has given us, the divine human person who humiliated himself to be with sinners and harmed himself, to pay for their sins, we undermine the work of Christ. To the extent we fail to keep foremost in our minds Jesus' willingness to receive and identify with sinners, we tend to ignore the sins we commit, deceive ourselves and lie to God by denying that we sin when we really do, and needlessly carry around a sense of guilt from our unconfessed sin. Brothers and sisters, God has given us a Savior fully qualified for those who sin. Yes, which includes even the most mature Christian here this morning, whoever that may be. A Savior to whom we can take our most shameful thoughts, words, and deeds. Christ is for us, friends. The Bible so declares. Are you looking to the person of Jesus Christ in your daily dealing with sin? He is willing and he is able, even this hour, to clear you of all your guilt and cleanse your dirty conscience. If Jesus underwent a water baptism that identified him with thousands who came to the Jordan River in search of cleansing from sin, he is willing to identify himself with you and your sin, no matter how disgraceful or humiliating it is. Jesus is qualified to save sinners because he proved himself willing to identify with sinners. My second point, because Jesus overcame temptation, we can rely on him to save sinners. Because Jesus overcame temptation, we can rely on him to save sinners. Jesus is qualified to save sinners not only because he's willing to identify with them, but also because he personally conquered temptation and the tempter himself. We can trust in Jesus' ability to deliver from sin because he experienced firsthand the power of sin in temptation and resisted it entirely. Read verses 12 and 13 again. The Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus' time in the wilderness was to demonstrate that he overcomes temptation and sin when all others would fail. As we have already touched on, Christ's 40 days in the wilderness were a parallel to Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. You don't have to turn there, but let me read from Deuteronomy 8:15 through 16 about God's purpose for his people during those 40 years. The passage says that it was God who led you, Israel, through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end, that he might humble you and test you. Not only was Israel's time in the wilderness a discipline for earlier unbelief, it was also a time of humbling and testing. Would Israel at last be obedient to their God and trust him? How well did Israel pass the test of their wilderness wanderings? Not very well, if you know your Bible. On more than one occasion, they grumbled against God and Moses and asked to return to slavery in Egypt. But where they failed centuries before, Jesus succeeded. He did not grumble, but he trusted his heavenly Father who sustained him, even though he was with the wild animals, just as Israel lived amid fiery serpents and scorpions. Not only did Jesus face the natural dangers of the wilderness, but there a supernatural danger confronted Jesus in a way Israel never encountered. Satan personally and directly directly tempted Jesus there in the wilderness. And what was the nature of those temptations? We know from the parallel account in Matthew 4 that Satan came to Jesus after he had been fasting 40 days and reminded Jesus that Jesus had the power to turn stones into bread that would satisfy his hunger then and there. Satan tempted Christ to put God to the test and divert his wholehearted devotion away from God and to the devil. Satan even quoted the words of the Bible in an effort to deceive Jesus. But Jesus endured and conquered the devil's enticements to sin, unlike Israel before him, unlike Adam and Eve before them, and unlike you and me today. It's worth pointing out that the temptations Jesus faced were of a different nature from those we often face. For us, as fallen people who inherited a sin nature from Adam, temptations arise either from within us or from outside of us. Temptations from within come from the corruptions of our sin nature. The book of James speaks of being lured and enticed by one's own inward desire. There's something within us, friends, even as born-again followers of Christ that desires to do evil, though we really want to do good. These remnants of the sin nature draw us, they tempt us from within. Without even being presented with an outward temptation, thoughts of lust, covetousness, and pride so often well up within you and me. These temptations are themselves sinful, coming from the evil desires of the sin nature we inherited from Adam, which, of course, the Lord Jesus did not, being the second Adam. And our dwelling on them or acting on them is really sin heaped upon sin. But temptations also come from outside of us, don't they? And that was Jesus' experience here in the wilderness with Satan Such temptations are not wicked desires that rise up within the soul, but instead they appeal to our legitimate desires, such as satisfying our genuine hunger for food, and then lure us to disobey God through deception, just as the first first sin in the garden uh, could be described. We might wonder how the Son of God could have experienced these outward temptations as a genuine trial of his faithfulness. He was God, after all, we might reason. Nonetheless, the Bible makes clear that Jesus suffered in temptation. It was not a charade. It was not an act. In fact, it's reasonable to believe the sinless God-man experienced the grief of temptation more acutely than any other human, simply because he never gave in. On this point, author C.S. Lewis Lewis commented, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And that is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Jesus never gave in. To be qualified as our savior, Jesus had to be made like us in every way except sin. And this means that his human nature was as vulnerable to falling into sin as the original Adam was. But unlike the original Adam, unlike the nation of Israel unlike us Jesus faith in God Jesus love for God compelled him to remain faithful in this powerful encounter with the prince of demons and in this way he proved himself to be our champion our victor obeying God when we would not if he has so overcome the power of evil so directly and so fully How can he not also succeed in delivering us from sin's penalty by his righteousness? He is fully qualified to be our savior. Not only can Jesus deliver us from our guilt before a holy God, but because Christ willingly identifies with sinners and personally knows the power of temptation, he is, in the words of Hebrews 2.18, able to help those who are being tempted now. The Son of God is qualified to save sinners both from the guilt and power of sin, not just in eternity, but now. Jesus is qualified to save sinners because he proved himself the victor over temptation and the tempter himself. My final point. Because Jesus received divine endorsement, we can rely on him to save sinners. Because he received divine endorsement, we can rely on him completely to save sinners. As we've discussed, Jesus meets the needs of people who sin. He is full of compassion and willing to stand with sinners in their need. And he has proven himself able to overcome temptation and sin, even direct confrontation with the devil himself. And while these qualifications are necessary for the Savior of Sinners, They would do us no good unless God also gave his unreserved approval to such a person to represent sinners. We see in verses 10 and 11, please look at them, that God has, in fact, declared his full endorsement on the person of Christ. And when he, that is Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Just after John finished baptizing Jesus, Jesus saw the sky open. The Holy Spirit descended on him, taking the visible form of something like a dove. Why a dove? Well, perhaps to indicate the sinless innocence of Jesus, who himself later counseled his disciples to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Christ receives here the public endorsement of the Holy Spirit, perhaps also a special anointing and infilling by the Holy Spirit to strengthen Jesus through his desert temptations and the start of his earthly ministry. Then Jesus and those around him also heard a voice from heaven calling Jesus, Son. And who could be addressing Jesus this way but God the Father? And what does the Father say? You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Father is not neutral toward the Son, or begrudgingly tolerant, but he delighted in the person of Christ, even before the cross, even before the resurrection. And further, what happened here identified Jesus as the promised Messiah, the promised servant of Isaiah 42, one, in which God says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. The Spirit's descent on Jesus and the Father's declaration at the Jordan River are confirmation of Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus is God's servant in whom God's soul delights. So what is happening here in Mark 1, 9 through 10 represents a double endorsement, we might say. Why is it so important that God is so pleased in the Son? Because we human beings never approach God directly. What do I mean? I mean we need a mediator. As we are today, even the most mature and upright person here, we fall short of God's moral requirements, as we've already established. All our righteous deeds are like a soiled garment in view of God's purity and holiness. And so the Bible says that by nature, we're at enmity with God. In other words, it's our default position to be in a relationship of animosity, hostility with God. We never go, go directly to God immediately because God is too pure to look with favor on those who are evil. But Jesus Christ is qualified to be that mediator that we need, one who wins us peace with God. Paul wrote that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And it is he who overcomes this broken relationship between us and God, a a relationship that we severed by our sin. Friend, if you are clothed with Christ by faith, Hidden in Christ, God looks upon you with the same delight with which he sees Jesus. If you are in Christ, God does not see you draped in the filth of your daily failure to love God and neighbor. No. If you are in Christ, God sees you as clothed in the righteousness of his Son, in whom he is begrudgingly tolerant. No in whom he is well pleased. In Christ, God is well pleased with you. Jesus is qualified to save sinners because he received God's endorsement as our perfect representative. Having demonstrated to God, man, angels, and demons that he was qualified to be the Savior, the one mediator between God and men, Jesus' preparation for ministry was now complete. And as we see at the end of today's scripture passage, he began to preach the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What should we believe about the content of this gospel, this good announcement of God to be? Jesus often preached in parables in his earthly ministry, and only eventually do we read that he would say clearly that he would die for sinners and rise again from death. So what is this gospel? Whatever its content at the start of Jesus' ministry, the gospel of God is not only what Jesus did, but also who Jesus is. Because the gospel of God is in his very name, Jesus which means Yahweh saves. Jesus came to save people from sin, from sin's guilt, sin's power, and in the end, all of sin's effects. It wasn't clear exactly how he would accomplish this from the perspective of Mark chapter 1, but the scripture here draws us to trust in the person of Christ, the one fully qualified to save sinners. Jesus is God's gospel, his good news, one who eagerly receives repentant sinners, one qualified to stand in place of sinners before a holy God, and the one in whom God is well pleased. Repent and believe the gospel of God by delighting in the person of Christ, trusting him, savior of sinners. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let us pray together. Almighty Father and Holy Spirit, we thank you for endorsing the Son as our mediator, our victor over the power of evil, and our friend. Lord Jesus, we praise you for all you have done, are doing, and will do for us. And we thank you that these works flow from your sinless character, your holy zeal for God's glory, and your humble and loving heart for us who would be lost without you. You are everything we need in a Savior. Cause us to delight in you now and always. We pray in your name. Amen.